Please come with me in the scriptures to Paul's letter to the Ephesians and our reading is chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. <coughs> For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now, 
Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. May the Lord help us to digest and absorb these great truths of his word. We're going to join in singing once more and having sung one hymn by the great reformer Martin Luther, we're now going to join in singing perhaps his most well-known hymn, it's 388. A mighty fortress is our God, a sure defence and weapon. 388.
It's quite noisy outside tonight. We all know the reason why. And perhaps we remember the little ditty, the 5th of November, the government treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Probably you don't remember that in this younger generation, but it was uh, something that was well known in times gone by. My message tonight is the grace of God in the Reformation. Now you may say, why think about what happened with Guy Fawkes? Or, or what happened at the Reformation so long ago? Well, one event was 416 years ago, and another 505 years ago. What relevance, you might be saying, or thinking, has that got for me? But it has a very big re 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 um, relevance to all of us. We're all affected by what has happened in the past. We can't change where we were born, the family we were born into, or, or the country and its laws that we have been born into. Why should we remember what God has done in the past? Winston Churchill once quoted somebody who had said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But more importantly, God in his word again and again tells his people to remember what he has done. This afternoon, most of you have been gathered around the Lord's table and you are there remembering what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for your salvation. We have bad memories. It's very easy to forget as time goes by. Somebody's prodded my memory already this evening uh, about their parents that I had known from 30, 40 years ago. I can't remember what they looked like, but I remember that, that where they were and where they worked. We need our faith strengthened as we remember what God has done. And we take encouragement from the great things that God has done in appearing amongst his people and building his church. Very few people today understand what Guy Fawkes was all about or what the Reformation was all about. But I want to show you tonight that we owe an enormous debt to our God for his deliverance and for his work in these two historic events. So remember, Parliament declared November the 5th a national day of thanksgiving from 1606 onward. Guy Fawkes Day, or as we know it now, Bonfire Night, celebrates the deliverance from the gunpowder plot. On the 5th of November 1605, Guy Fawkes with a group of uh, uh, English Roman Catholics, tried to destroy parliamentary democracy. He was discovered under the House of Lords with 36 barrels of gunpowder. Experts estimate that the explosion would have destroyed not only the House of Lords, where the King and Parliament would have been, 
but Westminster Abbey would have been damaged beyond repair and buildings as far away as Whitehall would have been seriously damaged. We thank God that that plot was thwarted. But not everyone thanks God for that. Karl Marx was so enamoured with this plot that he named his son Guido in honour of Guido Fawkes. And that tells you about communism and about Marxist philosophy. It tells you what might have happened when we read about what's happening in China and the oppression that goes on there. It reminds us that God in his mercy delivered us as a nation to have freedom of worship at that time. But 505 years ago, I'm talking first of all of 416 years, 505 years ago in Germany, October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted a paper on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. On it was a list of 95 statements or theses. He wanted people to discuss these things. He wanted a meeting of church leaders to consider these things. I guess today if we wanted to stir up a discussion, uh, we might... Uh, have a web blog, a, a web blog uh, or, or an internet discussion about things. When Luther did that, he had no idea that the, the, the effect of that would be so far-reaching and so long-lasting that it would change the course of world history. It literally shook and changed the world. It broke the power of the Roman Catholic Church in parts of the world and it brought freedom for other parts of the world. So what did the Reformation do? And why should we remember how we were delivered from a plot to destroy all that Reformation had brought to the United Kingdom in 1605? Let us remember the first thing. It gave us the Bible in our modern languages, in the world's modern languages. You see, the Roman Catholic Church believed that the Bible was dangerous in untrained hands, and they set store by tradition. But the Reformers believed in going back to the source of Christian faith and let the Bible be interpreter of the Bible. And so they translated the Scriptures into the languages of the world, beginning with Germany and England and places like that, so that people could read the Bible for themselves instead of having to accept what the priests in the Catholic Church had taught them. It meant that liter literacy spread and people were able to think for themselves and they were able to go back to the source of our faith, which is the teaching of the Lord Jesus and his apostles, in the word of God. The reformers wanted everyone to understand the message of the Bible. They knew that faith came by hearing and reading the word of God. That was God's design for bringing people to faith. And that's why uh, I'm in a pulpit in the middle of this building tonight. 
I'm not tucked away in a corner. I'm not behind a screen. I'm not... uh, I'm central because we believe that the preaching of the word should be central in Christian worship. This is what Martin Luther said about the scriptures. He said, after he'd seen the great effects of people reading the Bible, he said, I simply taught, preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer and my Philip and my Ansdorf, the, the word so weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. There is power in God's word as his word is accompanied by his spirit entering human hearts and touching consciences. And so that's the first thing that I want you to remember about the Reformation tonight. It's the Reformation that gave us the scriptures in our own indigenous languages. And we show that we love the Lord if we love his word. If you love scripture and you love hearing the word of God preached and you love living by the book, remember it was the wonderful rediscovery of this by people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and the reformers in England that brought it to us. And they knew that the sign of spiritual life, of a life that knows God and lives for God, is marked by a devotion to what God has spoken and revealed in his word. So that's the first thing. The second thing the Reformation gave us was an understanding of what true worship is. In the days before the Reformation, worship was led by priests. It was a performance. It was done in a language that the people couldn't understand. It was in Latin. And people were ignorant, passive spectators, not able to take part at all. The Lord Jesus Christ never intended us to be spectators at worship, but participants in worship with our mind and sometimes our voice to say amen or join in the singing. The reformers saw the New Testament gave us a biblical pattern for true worship. That God's design was to give his people teachers of the word, pastors, that the design of, uh, of God was for congregations to come together and support someone to be a leader in worship. He saw that the church should be a company of believers working together for, sh- for spreading the gospel and supporting one another in faith. The reformers saw that the Lord's Supper was uh, a place where we came to remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't a reenactment by a priest, but with heart and mind we gathered together to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. The reformers saw that worship was not to honour the church, but worship was to warm the heart and give the mind understanding of God and our need. A more modern writer, D.A. Carson, wrote, We should begin 
we should not begin by asking whether or not we enjoy, enjoy worship, but by asking, is this what God expects of us? Are we worshipping in a way that is pleasing to God? We want every act of worship to convey the message clearly so that it informs and warms and unites and builds. The reformers gave us a true understanding of worship as well as the word of God in a language we could understand. Thirdly, the reformers gave us a definition of what a true church is. The Roman Catholic Church argued that Christ preserved his church on earth through the office of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. They said that any uh, congregation of Christians that does not submit to the Pope is not a true church. The Reformers argued that any church that does not submit to the teaching of Christ and his apostles is not a true church. They said there were marks that would identify a congregation of genuine Christians. The first would be faithful preaching of the word. It's because preaching brings us to God and brings us to submit to God. Uh, uh, the authentic life of Christians needs to be maintained by the teaching and preaching of God's word. The second mark that the reformers said gives us the mark of a genuine church of Jesus Christ is administering and regulating the two sacraments that the Lord Jesus, not more as the Catholic Church, not seven, but two, which of course is the Lord's Supper, whereby we express our union with Christ, our union with one another, and baptism, whereby we show that we have been uh, forgiven, our sins are washed away, and uh, we've died to the old life, the self-life, and we've risen to live a life with Christ. They said where these two things are, that's one of the second mark of a church. And the third mark, they said, of a true church of Jesus Christ was that, uh, that one mark was discipline. You see, they recognised that the great enemy of Christianity is rottenness within. Scandal and hypocrisy does far more damage to a congregation of Christians than anything else. And uh, the things that were going on in the Roman Catholic Church of the Reformers' day were absolutely appalling. But nothing has changed. Wherever there's flagrant heresy or notorious unchristian behaviour that is tolerated within a congregation, it is so undermining and so damaging in the eyes of the world. Discipline helps us preserve purity and harmony and obedience. And where it's missing, a, a church would not be recognised as a holy, righteous community like Jesus Christ. Of course, the church has more than these three characteristics, such as prayer and fellowship and devotion, but the Reformers said those are the three important marks that denote where a true church can be found. And so that tells us that when we may need to relocate and find a new home or go away from our homes for an extended period, that's the kind of church that we need to look for. A church where there's the ministry of the word, 
where the congregation is accepting the ordinances of Jesus Christ and where there is no flagrant or notorious sin but the Christians are harmonised one together, uh, one, one to another in the true faith. What else did the reformers give us? Well, the reformers gave us congregational singing. I've never forgotten going to um, a watchtower funeral and they didn't know how to sing. Some false religions just chant. Some people to gather together and there's no singing. In the church before the Reformation, uh, the uh, singing was done by a choir. The people sat and listened. It was a performance. And one of the first things that Luther did was to dispense with the choir and get the congregation singing. Luther would often call together the congregation uh, together in the week to practice new hymns which he himself had written. Have you ever thought about what, it's, what it would be like if we, we never sang? We've sung great truths tonight. We sing things that perhaps we would be a little bit timid to say to each other one-to-one. We, we learn the great truths of the gospel. That's why the Wesleys wrote these great hymns, because they wanted the, the, the uneducated people of our land to learn the truth by singing. In reading, reading a, a, a book about um, strict Baptists um, this week, um, the, the writer reminded me of, of something that I well knew, that strict Baptists quoted a lot of hymns in their sermons. Um, the Gospel Standard Street Baptist, that is. Uh, they quoted a lot of hymns because uh, it, it's sometimes much easier to quote something that's been versified, sticks more in the memory, than perhaps an extended scope from the Scriptures. And hymns are, are a great vehicle of learning the truth and praising God acceptably in the truth. Listen to what Luther said. Next to the Word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. It controls our thoughts, minds, hearts and spirits. Hence we have so many songs and psalms. This precious gift has been given to man alone that he might thereby remind himself that God has created man for the express purpose of praising and extolling God. A person who does not regard music as a marvellous creation of God must be a clot hopper indeed and should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. <laughs> I love Luther, he's really down to earth. You, 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 you're compelled to, to sit up and think when you listen to Luther. Luther's really bringing home to us the value and the preciousness of our praise. Luther wanted everyone to be singing uh, to the praise of God based on the word of God. He wrote the simplest and most common, uh, he wrote, the, use the simplest and most common words, preserve the pure teaching of God's word, and keep the meaning as close to the Psalms as possible. And he so did, cited the song of Moses at the crossing of the Red Sea, and David and his Psalms that came out of the experiences that he was passing through. He said, music is a vehicle for proclaiming the word of God. He played the lute and was acquainted with the composers of the day. He wrote hymns for different occasions. 
we, we, we opened up with, with singing a modern hymn uh, which, is, which is based upon the creed. L Luther did similar things. He had hymns on the Ten Commandments, on the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Supper, and other things. And the hymn that we sung just now, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he's best remembered for that. It's based on Psalm 46. And he wrote that on the 10th anniversary of the time when he posted those theses on the Wittenberg church door that brought about the beginning of the Reformation. Brothers and sisters, what a precious thing that we've got a Christian heritage of hymnology and psalmology and praise. What a precious thing that we've had some wonderful spiritual composers. What a precious thing we've got musicians still to this day to help us leading in worship. I was reminded the other day, I was reminded tonight actually of, of the church my wife grew up. Um, we had like a, they had like a presenter with a pitch pipe um, and he would set the right note. I had to do it the other week when there was no musician available. But it, 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 there are simple ways in which we can start ourselves off. I, 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 I'm no uh, musician whatsoever, but I'm really thankful for that different gift. And remember, it was a Reformation that gave us congregational singing. And let's be people who rejoice in our praise and our worship. For, fifthly, the Reformation gave us the definition of what a minister of Jesus Christ is. In the days of the Reformation in England, the clergy had power and wealth and property, but they had become corrupt. Bishop Hooper, in 1551 in his Diocese of Gloucester, found out that there were 311 priests in the Gloucester Diocese. 168 of those men could not repeat the Ten Commandments. 31 didn't know who gave us the Lord's Prayer. Wow! Such was the ignorance and superstition of those who should have been leading and shepherding the people of God. Luther never used the word priest to define ministers. There's a rather cheeky lady in uh, our local supermarket who, when she sees me, has always got something to say. And uh, she spotted me this last week and she said to her friend, Oh, look, here's, here's a priest! And, and uh, I quickly had to uh, assure her I was no such thing. Um, I was a retired pastor. Martin Luther said, the reason these people are being called priests is either because of the custom of the heathen or a vestige of the Jewish nation. The reformers used the term pastor to describe ministers of God. They did that because the Lord Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep who gives under-shepherds to his people and the return of the Bible enabled people to read the letters of Paul to young pastors Timothy and Titus 
and understand what a shepherd of souls should be like and, and to understand how they should lead and how they should practice the Christian life. There were the biblical qualifications of ability and of character. The reformers realised that a man's authority doesn't come from the hands of a bishop that's laid on his hand carrying over to him apostolic authority, but the minister's authority comes from his preaching accurately God's word. The reformer Martin Luther of Strasbourg wrote probably the first book of uh, instructions on a minister. And it's interesting what he called it. In 1538 he wrote a little book called The Cure of Souls. For him, you see, the minister's task was to bring healing and compassion and cure to their hearers. That lives on today in those God equips and calls to pastoral ministry. And that's why you pray for pastoral care, because it's God's design for his people in the church. The reformers gave us a true, accurate understanding of what a true minister of the word should be. Sixthly, the Reformation gave us an understanding of the way that we should live. You see, before the Reformation, anybody who wanted to be serious about being holy and being devoted to God would go and live in a monastery or a nunnery. They believed that celibacy would uh, be a way to please God and keep them pure from the sins of the flesh. Well, we know it had exactly the opposite effect, and it's still been having the opposite effect in the Roman Catholic Church today. The Reformers understood that living out the Christian life is not by retiring into conclusion and escaping the pressures and temptations of the world, but living in the strength of God in every situation God has placed us in, day by day, to work out how we should be living. It's not by running from the devil, always running from the devil, but by resisting him at times and overcoming him that we exhibit a living and a practical faith. And so the reformers ensured that the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments were set up in every reformed church. They taught every child their duty to God and their neighbour. The Reformation gave us the biblical way to live as Christians, to be people in the world, but not of the world. Not to withdraw from the world, but to reflect Christ and his light in the dark world. And the Reformation, in giving us the way to live, gave us religious freedom. The principles of liberty of conscience, the rule of law, the separation of church and state was a concept of the reformers. It took a long time for it to fully work through, but that 
was the plan. The Reformation delivered people from superstition and ignorance. It staggers me today how superstitious people have suddenly got. There's all this nonsense on television about ghosts and spiritual things and apparitions. My word, do people really believe that? The reformers saw that people were being misled. When I went to visit my daughter when she lived in Spain, we went uh, through Portugal to visit uh, Jose and Elisa, the Christian workers there. And we passed by the signs to a town called Fatima. What was fascinating was that we got a member in our, ch our church whose husband is not a Christian, and they'd been there. He was amazed at Fatima. People were still going there as pilgrims. My word, it was making the people of uh, Fatima rich. Well, tourism was a big thing. <coughs> How gullible people can be to go on pilgrimages and believe there's such a thing you can buy as holy water. Remember visiting Brian, uh, Brian uh, Ellis in, in the Philippines. And he, he went to a particular church. Oh, he said, I'm sorry, it's closed. I wanted to show you that you could buy some holy water that would heal you. Now, that wasn't a Catholic church. At Boxley Abbey, uh, when uh, Cromwell's uh, uh, investigators went there, uh, they discovered there was a likeness of Jesus up against the wall. But when they took it off the wall, they discovered that it had got hidden wires. Wires that made the eyes move. And when pilgrims came to Boxley Abbey, the uh, idol there could move its eyes and look pleased if they gave silver coins and displeased if they gave copper coins. It was attracting pilgrimages. And it was deceiving people. They took it to Maidstone Market when they took it off the wall and people could see the fraud that had gone on. If we stick to the truths of the Reformation as contained in God's word, we will be delivered from superstition and ignorance. And we may be able to help those around us. And so... The Reformation gave us an application of God's word in every area of life. We can say that the Reformation brought more positive changes for good in society than any other movement in history. Most of the languages of the world were translated by Christians and put in writing by missionaries. Schools, universities... Homes and orphanages and agencies for social concern have all been started by Christians who follow the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ as rediscovered at the Reformation. And the Reformation has been a supreme force for restraining man's inhumanity to man. Almost every civilization at one time had slavery 
and human sacrifice. The missionaries who went out with the gospel found widow burning, found cannibalism, and all kinds of other ills and evils in society. And it was the reformed gospel that drove them to take the word of God and influence them. Those are the six principal ways I want to remind you that we need to remember the Reformation. But it's not simply only to remember. We need also to have in our heart the great truths that undergirded this reform. The truths that were contained in the Scriptures, which were a summary of the faith that we believe. The five solas, they're sometimes called. Scripture alone, not tradition. Christ alone, not Christ plus anything else. Faith alone, not works, not deeds, not rituals. Grace alone. Salvation is undeserved and cannot be earned or merited. And glory to God alone. No merit to us. No merit to the church. No merit to those who lead people to faith. These great truths captured the doctrines of Reformation. We sometimes know them as TULIP, the acronym. Total depravity, that sin is in all of us. None of us can escape that. Unconditional election, that had God not chosen us and called us, we would be remaining lifeless and spiritually dead. Limited atonement, the Lord Jesus came to secure the salvation of his people, his sheep. Not just to make salvation possible, but to make it sure. Irresistible grace. When God calls and God ordains to bring something to pass, it cannot be resisted. He is the God who has all power to touch hearts, change them and keep them changed. And the perseverance of the saints. The Reformation gave us to understand that we keep on persevering because God keeps persevering with us by his Spirit in the covenant of grace. But there's one more thing as I close. The slogan of the Reformation was Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformata S Second and Verbum Dei. I'm glad Paul Chandler's not here tonight. He uh, is a Latin teacher. Let me give it to you in English. The church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. We are people in a changing culture. And we are people who always ought to be examining our personal lives, our church lives, by God's word. We've got a great heritage. But our heritage is one that is timelessly applicable to every generation. And in a sense, 
Reformation means restoration. The Reformation of the Reformers brought about a restoration of biblical truth and life. And we need to be people who are always considering how we should also be people who are newly and ongoingly restored. Sometimes we can be people whose hearts grow formal, whose hearts grow cold. We need always to have that sense of God's presence and work in our life, restoring us if we slip away from the high standards that we began our Christian life with. Reformation means renewal. That means that we are continually being renewed as we are being exposed to God's Word and as the Word of God is impacting our lives. And Reformation, of course, will so often begin with repentance. How are our hearts kept pure? Our hearts are kept pure by us realising there are things that creep into our lives that we have to address. Habits that need to be broken by the grace of God. Reformation means renewal and repentance and restoration. And our world needs people like us in its midst. 